Well, all humankind has been the focus of our sermon series so far on Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Today we begin the second major section of the book of Genesis, and the focus narrows to one specific family, the family of Abraham. Here we meet for the very first time in the narrative the concept of God's chosen people. And for some people, this is a thorny issue. People ask, why did God enter into covenant relationship with and reveal God's self to just one family? That's playing favorites. It's unfair. Why didn't God reveal God's self to all people simultaneously? That would, would have been the democratic thing to do. So is it fair for God to choose to adopt one group of people and leave others out? Good question. And here's my response. As we'll see from today's text, Abraham and his descendants are chosen not just for relationship and salvation, but also for service as well. They're given a job, a mission, actually a universal worldwide mission. They are called to be the conduit through whom all people come to know, love, and serve the one true God. In other words, one family is chosen in order that God might redeem the entire human family. That is certainly God's desire. Now, we are told at the end of chapter 11 that Terah, Abram's father, took his son Abram and his wife Sarai and grandson Lot, and they departed from Ur of the Chaldeans, ancient Iraq, to go to the land of Canaan, i.e. modern Israel on the West Bank. Whether the destination of Canaan was Terah's idea or God's command, we simply don't know. What we are told is that the family stopped when they came to the city of Haran in Turkey. Why they stopped and went no further, we are not told. Our text tells us what happens following Terah's death. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Our reading this morning is from Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9, from the New Revised Standard Version. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Sheshem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel, 
and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. So God spoke to Abram and gave him a command followed by four promises. Here's the command. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That command presupposes that Abram must trust God in order to receive the promises which follow. This means that he must simply start walking with his entire household, including Sarai and his nephew Lot. So they leave as commanded, along with the persons that they have gotten in Haran. Now, where does God want Abram to travel? God doesn't say explicitly. The Almighty simply commands Abram to go to the land that I will show you. God doesn't clearly identify the destination or their precise route in advance and provides no AAA maps or GPS. Abram is to depend on the guidance of the one who sends him. Ultimately, their destination turns out to be Canaan, but apparently when their journey began, God hadn't yet revealed that. According to our text, God tells Abram nothing about his destination or even his route. Abram must trust God and display that trust by starting his journey. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews focuses on that uncertainty when it declares, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out, not knowing where he was going. I think trust rather than faith or belief is the best word to describe the basis of our relationship with the triune God, largely because it's more personal and because trust compels us to take action. Too often we make faith or belief an intellectual concept alone and leave it at that. James writes, Even the demons believe and shudder. But friends, personal trust in God demands that we at least occasionally act out that trust. When exploring the Hebrew verb for faith, we discover it means to support, confirm, uphold, and make stable. Its root idea is firmness or certainty. It's used of support in the sense of the strong arms of a parent holding a helpless infant. The term applies to God and describes God's dependable and trustworthy nature. Some years ago, missionary John Payton was translating the Bible into the language of a South Sea Island people and struggled because the language of the people had no word corresponding to trust or believe. At the end of a hard day's work, he noticed a villager sitting down and leaning back on a chair. The villager commented how wonderful it was when you were tired to lean your whole weight on something. That was just the image Peyton had been searching for. To believe or to trust was to lean your whole weight on God in Christ. Now he could continue his work of Bible translation. A bridge in South America is made of interlocking vines and swings hundreds of feet 
above a river far below. Though thousands of people have walked over that bridge over the years, it takes courage. Eventually, if we want to cross, we must take a step and put down our weight on that bridge, trusting it will hold us. In the same way, when we step out in faith, we are trusting God will support us. If you've ever had surgery, then you've been given the opportunity to trust. To trust that God will be at work through your surgeon, restoring you to health, doing what you cannot do for yourself. What you can do is to trust. As you near the operating room, the question is whether you will trust God will be working through the surgeon on your behalf for your good. In this context, Abram's trust in God means he is asked to take a risk. He trusts God and begins a journey with the destination yet unknown. He risks everything to follow God, further contact with his extended family back in Haran, his safety and that of his immediate family and his entire household and all his possessions. Abram's trust in God, his personal faith, gives him the strength and the courage to be bold and take that risk. Abram becomes for many the paragon of a strong, personal, deeply trusting faith. Thirteen times by my account in the Genesis narrative, God speaks to or reveals God's self to Abraham. That same degree of intimacy with God is not present in the lives of those who follow, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. In the case of, of Isaac, for example, Genesis records only three such encounters he has with God. The other patriarchs do, in fact, speak with God, but not with the same frequency or the same intimacy as Abraham. It is Abram's trust in God which defines him. In his New Testament letter, James calls Abraham the friend of God because his deep trust was the mark of that friendship with the God who had befriended him. In addition, the writer of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews in his chapter about true faith devotes more space to Abraham than any other single individual. This past March the 6th, at Stanford, California, George Schultz died at age 100. He served in the cabinets of Presidents Nixon and Reagan. Among the positions he held were Secretary of State, Labor, Treasury Secretary, and Director of the Office of Management and Budget. He graduated from Princeton, served as a Marine in World War II, and taught at MIT, the University of Chicago, and Stanford, where at his death he was Professor Emeritus of the Graduate School of Business and a Fellow of the Hoover Institution. He had also served as President of the Bechtel Corporation when it was still based in San Francisco. Mr. Schultz had a reputation for integrity and honesty. In his last year of life, he penned an article for the Washington Post entitled, The Ten Most Important Things I've Learned About Trust Over My 100 Years. And he wrote in part, I'm struck that there is one lesson I learned early and then relearned over and over. Trust is the coin of the realm. When trust was in the room, whatever room that was, the family room, the school room, the locker room, 
the office room, the government room, or the military room, good things happened. When trust was not in the room, good things did not happen. Everything else is details. Schultz was talking about trust between human beings, not specifically on those occasions about trusting in the triune God, but that was very much present in his life as well. Before my wife Lisa and I were married 25 years ago, she lived in Palo Alto near the Stanford campus where she worked as a nurse and was a member of St. Bede's Episcopal Church and regularly attended their 8 a.m. Sunday service. Like many of us, she usually sat in the same pew each week. Who do you think was her regular pew partner at that service? None other than George Schultz. He didn't trust in people alone, but he put his ultimate trust in the living God. What promises did God make Abram? Here are the first three. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And then comes the fourth and final promise. It's the greatest of all and is breathtaking in scope. God promises in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Back to my earlier comments about God choosing Abram and his descendants for both salvation and service. God makes a claim on the Hebrew people, on the Israelites. Their ultimate mission and purpose is to be a blessing to all by sharing the love and knowledge of God with all humankind. Friends, from the very beginning of the Christian movement, believers understood that in Jesus, the promise of God to Abraham had begun to be fulfilled. That's what Peter says in a sermon recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. And Paul writes in Galatians about God declaring the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. Well, where does this leave us today? As followers of Jesus, most of us who are ethnically Gentiles have been grafted into God's chosen people. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, You see that those who believe in Jesus are the descendants of Abraham. Those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. Just as we have been included in God's enlarged family of faith through trusting in Jesus Christ as God's one-of-a-kind Son and our Savior, we have also inherited that same missionary mandate as ancient Israel to be a blessing to all. How do we do that? By exercising our trust in God and bearing witness to Jesus Christ with our attitudes, actions, and words. Paul told the church in Corinth, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. So, to Abram, whose name originally meant exalted father, God makes these promises and renames him Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. God is beginning 
anew the grand project of redeeming humankind, at least a representative group from all peoples and nations. And though, as we'll see next week, Abraham was not sinless, he was a person of deep personal trust in God. And today, as followers of Jesus, we are among those who claim to be children of Abraham. What matters most in being a child of Abraham is having the same kind of trust in God that he had. Abraham walked with God, literally and figuratively. To obtain the covenant promises, Abraham had to literally walk forth in trust to the land which God would show him. As we trust in the triune God today and seek to live in the world as God's adopted people and servants of Christ, we must, like Abraham, spiritually walk with God, trusting that, like Abraham, the God who calls us in Christ will not lead us astray. Amen.